This is Speaking Z Theology with Chris Green. Bill, it's good to see you again. How are you today? Doing well. How are you, Chris? I'm doing re- really well. Doing really well. It's lovely weather here. I know you, when you came to ORU, which was a few years ago, you came to play baseball, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I did. Back in uh, 1977, a long time ago. Wow. That's impressive. And then I've heard you say this, like, just recently, that this is the first time they've made the World Series since then, since you were since there? Then, 19, it was uh, 1978, my freshman year, we made the World Series. That was before they had a super regional. So you would go to a regional and then straight to the World Series. I think we actually finished third in the nation that year um, oh, when it was wow. all said and done. But we haven't been back since. We've been back to regionals, but never back to the World Series until this year. Man, man. What did you, I, I don't I I should remember this, but I don't. Where what did you play? What was your position? I was a catcher. catcher. Mostly in the bullpen. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Listen, it counts. It absolutely counts. It absolutely counts. So you was right fun. now was you're so, go ahead, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. You know, I said it was just it was a, a a lot of fun, but I had to realize that eventually that wasn't gonna be my future, so <laughs> but I sure enjoyed well, it. I'm, I'm glad it wasn't because I got to meet you. Man, what is this, 2008, 2007, something like that, um, in a doctor of ministry class at ORU. You were one of, you and Dr. Ed Decker, whom I'll, I'll mention again in a moment, very influential for me. And then you know, you've spoken at the church where I was a few times, and yeah, we've kind of stayed in contact since then. So it's good to chat with you again. Now your official title is Senior Professor of Counseling, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I know that's what happens when you get old, I guess. They just <laughs> change your title to senior now. <laughs> and you're also associate dean, but in all in all in all reality, right, just deaning as well as we're sort of in a transition now with deans, and so I'm kind of assuming that role for the, the time being anyway. Yeah. And are you still doing full time therapy work or is that just no room for that right now? No, I, I still maintain a part-time private practice in the community. It's been really important to me to keep my foot in that world. I always tell my students that what sounds so neat in the classroom never applies as cleanly in the office. So <laughs> this is always a reminder to me when I'm working with clients that uh, life is a lot more complicated than we might wish it were. Yeah, no doubt. And you've also pastored. I don't know if you are right now, but I know you have much of the time that I've known you and your parents were pastors. Talk to us a little bit about that, that side of the story. Yeah, I was raised in, um, in new England, actually in New Hampshire, about two hours North of Boston. Um, I was a fourth generation son of Pentecostal preachers. Um, my parents, grandparents, uh, planted churches in, in the new England area, which, uh, I discovered after I came out to Oklahoma that, um, that Pentecostalism is a whole lot different out here than it was when I was growing up. <laughs> yes, most things are crossed over the other side of the tracks. We were we hadn't quite made it that far back in New England when I was growing up. Um, so I always yeah. kind of joke with my students, although I guess I'm really not joking, that the the two biggest influences on my my development uh, were, were growing up poor and Pentecostal. That um, it was a it was a challenge, um, but. Looking back, it was a rich experience, and um, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah, that's lovely. So let's. what we want to talk about today is trauma, specifically the, the theological issues and pastoral issues that are forced on us by, by trauma, and how, whether that's personal trauma we've suffered or the trauma that those we love suffer, or as pastors and teachers caring for those who, who've suffered trauma. So let's let's just begin with what what have you learned about? I mean, when you're talking to your students about trauma, about therapy, about the theological issues kind of raised by all of that, uh, where do you begin? Like, how do you help them orient? Yeah, you know, it's um, the definitions of trauma have really changed over the years, um, even since I've been a, a clinician and um, a pastor, uh, it really came out of our work with veterans probably years ago, what they used to call shell shock, you know, and now mm. it came to be known as PTSD. But um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, which is sort of our authoritative source for diagnosing, has mm. um, 
I think it's in its fifth edition now, uh, has slightly changed the definition of trauma over the years. It, it used to be that the emphasis was on uh, having an experience where you were really faced with pr- pretty much imminent death, that you thought you were going to die and you were having this experience of helplessness and horror in response to that. Um, they've since broadened that definition a lot um, so that now it's not even necessarily something that you experience experience yourself personally, but you may witness somebody else experiencing it uh, or hear their stories, Mm -hmm. um, what we call vicarious traumatization. But Mm. trauma is is really not in the event itself, Um, even though some events we kind of refer to as traumatic events because they're just horrible, horrific. But it's really more in the person's experience of that event and how they respond to it. Um, so you can have two people experience the same event and one of them ends up with some kind of, you know, PTSD response, let's say, and the other person may not, um, for various reasons. Um, but, uh, what we, um, what I talk to my students about is just the importance of listening to the stories that your, your clients, your congregants will tell you, um, and really paying attention to the experience that they've had, um, the way that they've been attempting to process that experience, the meaning they're trying to construct around that experience. And even if they're describing an event that you may not necessarily think is all that traumatic yourself, um, pay attention to how the client experienced that. You know, um, how did it impact that person and and why? Because um, we can't always just objectively say that one event's traumatic and another event isn't. Um, because there's a wide range of um, experiences. And really, um, uh, I think that anytime we have an experience where it feels like the world as we know it became deeply threatened in some way, so that moving forward in a way that we had been was now at risk, that somehow the world as we knew it was not the same that that is potentially uh, the basis for a, a traumatic experience as you try to integrate whatever it was that happened that, you know, created that experience for you. Hmm. And do you think, I mean, this, this is probably too flat a question, but you can readjust it. I mean, do you, do you think that how those earlier definitions were keeping us from being aware of just how damaged people actually were? Or, or do you think we're at the risk of labeling things traumatic that in fact are not? I mean, where's the real risk here? Or is there risk kind of on both sides of that problem? Yeah, I think there's maybe risk on, on both sides. Um, uh, we hear so much more about trauma now than we ever have, it seems to me. Um, mm-hmm. and trauma studies have become a huge focus in the last couple of decades uh, and so there is, is a risk, I think, at, at trying to kind of refer to everything as potentially traumatic. And um, and I, I do think sometimes I, that word gets thrown around a little too casually and, and easily. Right. But on the other hand, I think we miss a lot of what was really traumatic because we were limiting it too much. Uh, the, the DSM in their diagnostic criteria, they look for several things that they think are important. I mean, there's the event itself that the the person experienced that was very threatening to the world as they knew it and their existence in it. But but then there's this idea of re-experiencing that um, event, either through Mm. nightmares, flashbacks, memories you just can't seem to shake that just keep coming back, you know, and just tormenting you in some ways. Yeah. Then there's usually some avoidance behavior. The person's trying to avoid any kind of um, memories of that event or anything that reminds them of that event. Um, just, you know, trying to uh, stay away from um, the scene of the crime, so to speak, of whatever whatever it was that took place. Um, and then there's often a uh, just an increased arousal, kind of startle reflex a person has. They're on edge a lot, uh, just, you know, often reacting very quickly and uh, extremely sometimes to, to stimuli, just feeling like they're just living on edge, often having a, a notion of a foreshortened future, just struggle to relax, to you know, really trust that they're safe and that the future is secure. 
So there's this con, you know, um, kind of constellation of symptoms, this kind of syndrome that the DSM says, take a look at all those different components uh, to, to, in order to use that diagnosis, basically. Um, mm-hmm. But we do see those kind of uh, PTSD reactions in a lot of different ways, not just in the, your classical, uh, you know, some horrific incident happened um, that was a near-death experience, let's say. Uh, I've seen it a lot in working with couples where there's been like an affair. Uh, one of them uh, had an affair mm-hmm. that caught the other one by surprise. But in so doing, it had the kind of implications that caused their world to sort of feel very threatened. Um, it's like, where do I go yeah. from here? And they exhibit a lot of those you know, PTSD type reactions to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it's, it's good to kind of loosen the definition a little bit, but then, you know, not too much. Yeah, you don't label, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So let, let's talk a bit about the kind of pastoral spiritual dimensions of this. I mean, obviously you, you teach at or Roberts university, your fourth generation Pentecostal kid. And what, what would you say are the particular risks for folks in our world, Pentecostal charismatic movement broadly, where are the risks for how we might interface with trauma? I mean, I, I, I think I could guess, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. Yeah, I'm sure you could uh, guess and probably say it a lot better than I could. But, but one of the things that, um, sticks out to me is our in Pentecostalism we um, we just have this tendency to want to simplify things to, to we often have yeah. a kind of a dualistic way of thinking it's either good or bad God or the devil you know right or wrong and uh, we struggle to live in the in the gray zones in some ways and really embrace complexity and, and mystery yeah. uh, we, we want to be able to provide you know, kind of a an answer and I understand that that would be nice. I mean, I'd like to be able to provide answers for some of these experiences. I remember when I first started out in, in counseling some years ago, I, um, when I was in pastoral ministry, I encountered the need for counseling and discovered that I had a heart for it, but didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I thought I better get back and get some more education before I do any more damage. Uh, but basically, when I started seeing clients and hearing some of the stories, some of the really stories of trauma, uh, I realized in a hurry that that um, my theology was not adequate to explain what I was hearing. And it challenged me to start thinking a little more deeply and, and yeah. broadly, just kind of, kind of understand God's involvement in our lives and in the world in a, in a, in a different way. Cause you know, I, my theology at the time was not it, you know, strong enough, deep enough, whatever you want to call it to really make sense of what I was, what I was hearing. Um, but that tendency to want to simplify things, you know, it's just this or it's just that, you know, or, or just do this and you'll be fine. And, and we want to um, we want to be able to just pray the, the prayer of deliverance or the miracle, whatever it was, you know, get the person healed up. And um, we struggle to, you know, to live with ongoing issues that we can't seem to solve. Um, yeah. So that's been one of the yeah, things I, I've I noticed. Think- yeah, it raises for me, like, I, this is, I don't know how exactly to frame it, because, you know, the, the easiest way would be simply to say it's a double-edged sword, to use that image, or a, a strength that's also a weakness. But that that's not quite right. I think the reality is a bit more complex than that. But I think, kind of, you know, speaking broadly of, you know, kind of spiritualities that are open to the miraculous work of God that, that in some sense expect God to do the impossible. There's a, there's a kind of optimism. I know like in Wesleyan theology, there's the reference to the optimism of grace that a lot of Pentecostals are shaped by this sense that we, we should be confident that God can, can do what for anyone else is impossible. Right. And it also tends to be individualistic or even hyper individualistic. Right. So there's this kind of marriage of optimism in the power of God and a, and a heightened sense of individual possibility to claim that, to receive it, to, to lay hold of it in one way or another. And in some ways, I, I don't want to be too quick to brush that aside because I do think there is that can be empowering in a certain way can be like if, if, if done the exactly the right way, like you can really call on people to, to feel a sense of personal 
agency. You know that you're not simply at the mercy of what's happened to you. You you can and should have hope in in this God who cares for you. But I've also seen it in my own life and the life of so many people I love. You know, go so wrong in so many different ways, right? In which instead of that being hopeful and empowering, it's actually very disempowering, and and leads to well, a whole range of of problems, including people claiming things that that they never like actually experience. And then, you know, t- trying to talk themselves into having had experienced it or blaming themselves for not having had experienced it. So how, how, how do you hold those together, both as a pastor, a therapist, and as a professor? Like, how do Pentecostal and charismatic folks, like, retain that kind of optimism, confidence in God without the simplicities, without the hyper-individualistic moralizing that ends up putting pressure on people that does more harm than good in the long run. Yeah. Well, it's a great question. And, um, uh, cause I know in, in, in many cases from what I've experienced that when people would maybe have a, some kind of a traumatic, uh, experience that involved, um, some sort of traumatic response, they would often, um, feel as though they had failed in some way just because they had the experience that if they had done something differently, God would have protected right. them from it, would have prevented it from happening. So the fact that it happened mm-hmm. at all suggests some kind of failure on their part, uh, which is such a mm-hmm. terrible thing um, that they're already at that uh, feeling shamed for it. Um, and I think um at least I hope that Pentecostalism has, has made some progress in being able to embrace the the process of this while, while not giving up on the fact that God um, is, a, is a miraculous God, that God still uh, is very involved in human uh, affairs and, and, um, and, and works sometimes you know, miraculously in our lives. But coming to appreciate the, the process um, as uh, one of our former deans, uh, Tom Matthew, used to say, "Learning how to live between miracles, basically." Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. So, this idea of walking things out and um, and learning how to integrate experiences into our our kind of evolving story and and how rich that can be, um, and the the growth and uh, formation that occurs uh, through all of that, the, uh, the wisdom that is gained. Uh, so I, I hope we're, we're gaining more of an appreciation for just the process of, of all of that. Uh, certainly there are breakthrough moments when those are wonderful and when we feel like there was some kind of a, maybe a, a stronghold broken or some kind of major giant step forward that was taken. But even there, you know, even when you have your crossing the Red Sea experience, you know, there's still the wilderness. You got to keep going right. and crossing and yes. just... Yeah, you can't just jump to the promised land, you know? Yeah. And and even when you get there, right? Like, in some ways, the work is just starting, right? Like, it's the... There are all kinds of ways in which... And I, I do think this the point you've made about how we oversimplify. I think we also... And you may have used this word as well. We also, I think, I think foreshorten the process, right? So we, we simplify and we shorten, right? which is just another way of simplifying... And so we're expecting the process not to take too long. And if we if we cooperate well, right, then it then it'll be over over quickly. But I, I think some of that is whatever I remember I can't remember now who said it, but I remember this this great, great lecture I heard uh, years ago. And in the after the lecture, someone in the audience brought up this point about which virtues does your spirituality develop in you? So, you know, it's kind of like public lecture on theology and spirituality. And the audience member, the one who brought up the question, she was just asking what I thought was a really astute question, which was, you know, in whatever tradition you are, whatever spirituality you've kind of given yourself to, like what virtues get inculcated and nurtured there? And, the response was, well, in Pentecostal spirituality, one of the virtues we do not inculcate is patience, right? Like we do not, typically, we do not know how to nurture kind of patience and the, the what, you know, what the King James calls long suffering. 
So I think that's a part of the process too, right? I mean, being willing to accept that this process might take a long time and that it doesn't have to happen overnight. Because, yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think as Pentecostals, we have, um, we don't know what to do with chronic struggles. So when someone is mm. struggling and it's not going away in spite of all that we've tried to do that in our minds is supposed to take care of this. So we prayed the prayer of faith and we, you know, confess or done whatever we thought we were supposed to do. And the struggle continues, then we don't know what else to do about it. So at that point, yeah. quite often avoidance starts to happen. We just avoid talking about the issue. We avoid asking the person how they're doing that person just projects an image like I'm doing fine because they're they're too embarrassed to admit they're continuing to struggle, which is the worst thing in the world that can happen because then it just goes into yeah. secret where it tends to thrive and, and take over the person's life. So allowing for chronic um, struggles is, is one of the things that I, I as Pentecostals, we need to do, learn and do a better job of because you're, you're so right. We struggle with patients around that sort of thing. Yeah, and I remember the class that I took with with you. I think you had half the week, and Doctor Decker had half the week. It was a week intensive for our team in program. And if I, you know, memory's a funny thing, so I may have collapsed those together. Um, they were both terrific, but I, I remember when when Ed came in for his session. It's you know early Monday morning. He comes in with our stack of you know papers we had we had written for the pre-course material we had read and he throws the papers down on the table and says, I mean, this is the first thing he says to us, right? I'd never seen this man in my life before. You know, I'm so glad none of you is my pastor because you think every problem comes back to personal willful sin. And, and then he, and he had some colorful language in there as well. And it was it was a shocking moment, but it it absolutely. I mean, it was what we needed. I, at least what I needed. This kind of, yeah, I I am kind of geared to reduce every problem down to personal failure. Like there's something you're not doing that you should be doing, or there's something you are doing that you should not be doing. And if you could just fix that, then it would all kind of sort from there. And I I, I don't think I even knew I did think that until. He named it so bluntly, right? And then in the your your sessions, we the sessions we had with you, you talked a lot about family systems and the ways in which problems are never just about one person, right? Like we are our lives are far more entangled than that and bound up together. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Like that not just our impatience, but also how myopic we are. How in, you know, we throw that word around a lot, but we're individualistic, I think, in the worst sense, right? Like we think that this comes down to, without even realizing we think it, we kind of assume that you know, really if, if each individual would just do what's theirs to do and nothing else, then most of this stuff would be dealt with. And that, that I think that's a really hard, that's deeply rooted in us and I think hard to uproot. So talk about that. Yeah, because we... What you were mentioning with Ed, and that's that sounds so like him to do what, what you described. Um, yeah, he loved the, the shock value. Um, yes, he did. He certainly got our attention. Um, but we're so desperate to have a, a sense of control, I think. Um, and, and our theology kind of gives us that in some ways. That's what we, we like it when we can break things down to, you know, just do these three things and you'll get the outcome you look for. Um, and so we so desperately want that to work because uh, it gives us that illusion of control. Mm-hmm. But then when it doesn't work, then that's when we run into all kinds of problems around that. And um, in the the systemic nature of things, because you, you, you brought up how individualistically um, focused we've uh, often been, but, um, uh, but realizing we're, we're we're all part of a larger community and the role that community plays in um, especially the recovery from, from trauma as we uh, walk that out And the community can be such a, a, a help, but also at the same time can be a real part of the problem. If we're not mm. careful, just like we were describing yeah. earlier, you know, if, if your community is not a safe place where it's okay to struggle and not to, 
you know, get the victory overnight, so to speak, um, then, uh, you know, that, that community can allow for um, you to be able to be open and honest and receive the support you need. In fact, we, I mentioned earlier about how, uh, you know, two people can have experienced the same kind of event traumatic event, so to speak, mm-hmm. but uh, one may not come away um, traumatized by it. Uh, and that has a lot to do with just maybe uh, kind of their psychological health and balance prior to the to the event. But it has a lot to do with the level of care and support they receive after the event. Um, and mm-hmm. for people who have communities of support where they feel safe and they know that with these people, I can be me and I can be honest and transparent. And I don't always have to have it all together. And it's okay for me to, to struggle and to, you know, not be well. And I know they're going to accept me and love me anyway. Uh, that person has such an advantage when it comes to the whole process of recovering from what they went through, as opposed to being part of a community where you feel like, well, yeah, I have support, but that support may only last a certain period of time, after which I'm supposed to have gotten my act together. And if I haven't, then, you know, they're, they're, they're losing patience yeah. with me. Yeah. So let, let, let me put it to you like this. So imagine, you know, you're, you're kind of being invited into, you know, my church or someone else's to do a diagnosis of how healthy the community is in relation to those who've been traumatized or who are Recovering. I'm not even sure what the right language is. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. If if recovery or healing are even the right metaphors for what it looks like to live well on the other side of trauma, we'll come to that. But like, what are the things you would look for? I mean, what should we be looking for in our own communities that are kind of signs that this is a place, These the way we're relating to each other creates an environment in which those who have suffered trauma can receive the care they need. I mean, what are the, and I guess you could talk about it the other way too. What are the warning signs that something is off, right? That, that it would be an unsafe place or, or even dangerous for, for someone who's on this side of having been traumatized. Yeah. Um, often the tone for that is, is set with the leadership. So I'd certainly look at the leadership and, and look at, um, uh, how really transparent and open are the leaders? Because uh, they set the tone so mm. much for what um, the congregants feel like is okay. Uh, there's a, a lot of communities of faith that have the kind of the appearance of having community, you know, close relationships, uh, intimacy. Yeah. But it, uh, it is based on, on something much more superficial. We know that, that intimacy in community and in relationships is always going to be based on shared weakness, not shared strength. So in other words, if you come to church and all you're hearing are shared strength, you're hearing about answers to prayer and miracles and deliverance, I mean, all of which have their place. I mean, they, they can be inspiring and encouraging and, you know, and, and encourage someone's faith, but they're not the basis for intimacy because someone's hearing about somebody else's answer to prayer and they're thinking, well, that's great. You know, I'm still waiting for mine. But, yeah. but somebody shares weakness. You know, they share a struggle. You know, they, they share some kind of um, issue that, you know, they're, they're dealing with, especially if it's more of a here and now, not so much a there and then, but, you know, a here and now mm-hmm. kind of issue. It's like everybody relates. It's like, oh, you struggle? Well, so do I, you know. Now we have this common bond. It's why 12-step groups work so well. You know, we started a 12-step group. You know, hi, I'm Bill. I'm an alcoholic. Well, so are you, so are you, so are you. All right, so we're sharing weakness, but it creates safety. So to what extent... Mm. Is it safe to share weakness, to be transparent, to be really authentic? That's one of the things I, I would look for um, uh, mm. to determine mm. how safe is this place and, and how capable is this place of being the kind of supportive community that a, a traumatized person would, would need. Um, it's, uh, you know, I know that you, you may not share everything from the pulpit, so to speak, um, but yeah. are there places within that community where there's, these safe pockets where it's okay for you to um, to be you and to have the safe relationships you need. Yeah. You know, I, two, two thoughts about that, and I'd love to get your response to them. The first was in Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his, you know, when he's teaching in the underground seminary, he has a series of lectures that he gives on, on pastoral care. So to these 
seminarians about how to care. And he makes this distinction that I, I've found to be really, really helpful. And that is between the way, when you share your vulnerabilities, and I'm going to come back to that word in a moment, but he says that in the moment in which you are caring for others, it's rarely the right time to share your own struggles. Like when you're caring for them, attend to what they need, be the presence of Christ to them. Listen, mostly be attentive. Don't use that as an occasion to talk about, Oh yes, I know what you're experiencing because I've experienced it too, or I've experienced something similar. He said, but you do have to have other times in which you share your weakness. Right. So I've, I've always found that to be some, there's wisdom in that. It seems to me, right. But to not use, if you're coming to me sharing your weakness, that may not be the right moment for me to divulge my own struggle. It might be the moment where you just need to be heard and I need to be reassuring to you as best I can. But over the long haul, the only way we're going to be able to stay in community is if at times you can see my weaknesses too, right? Like that, I, that, that seems to me to be wise and, and helpful for for those who have pastoral responsibility. I have a second point, but do you want to comment on that first? No, I, I agree 100% with that. Um, when I'm working with, with clients, you know, either a clinical setting or if it's a pastoral setting with, with congregants, uh, yeah, I'm all about hearing their story, but hearing it in a very accepting, non-judgmental way. That's not the time for me to share my story. Um, mm-hmm. They may already know some of my story, depending upon, you know, what they've heard elsewhere. But, um, but yeah, in those moments, it's about it's all about them. Um, what Alan Alan Wolfolt uh, talks about as companioning with them, just kind of walking mm. with them through it, where I'm letting them take the lead and I'm learning from them about their experience. I'm more in the learner position, not the expert position. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the Paracletos, right? Like that's that's what it means to to come alongside people and again be attentive without being intrusive or divulging too much about your own your own story and I, I think that's that's really helpful the other one is is something that one of my spiritual directors said to me I, I made some comment about being vulnerable and he stopped me and he said well I think you should clarify he's like I think there's a difference between being transparent and being vulnerable and that both both can be good but they're not simply identical and that in what he was saying to me is that a lot of young pastors make the mistake of being vulnerable when what was needed was transparency. And so I I kind of asked him, I kind of probed that distinction and the way the distinction he made, which again, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it is that being vulnerable is exposing a wound that is still opened, right? Like the, you're, you're specifically addressing something that's broken or diseased in your life. And of course, there, you have to be vulnerable with people who can heal. But if you're vulnerable with the wrong people or at the wrong time, then you're undermining, perhaps, the, the kind of confidence they need to have that you can care for them. But that you, can all, you always have to be ready to be transparent about how God is working in your life. So that continues to fascinate me. Right? Like That seems like a fine distinction, but I think... I think it's one worth making. I'd, I'd love to hear what what you make of it. It may be the first time you've heard it. it may not, but well, it I'd is. I, that's an interesting distinction, and I um, I think I hear what he's saying, and I uh, and I I do agree with that in the sense that exposing an open wound that you have um, it, it probably does kind of threaten the confidence, maybe that your congregant <laughs> or client would have in you. It's like, oh, <laughs> are you going to be able to help yeah. me? I know. It's like the difference between uh, being what Henry Nouwen calls a wounded healer, you know, versus a bleeding healer, you know. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm still healing up myself, but at the same time, hopefully, I'm not bleeding all over you, which is kind of what I'm hearing mm-hmm. uh, the way that he's defining vulnerability. I think that's I think that's the gist of it, right? Like that there's a what 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 he's pointing to is the the vulnerability is putting a responsibility on that person that's not theirs because you're vulnerable with healers. You're vulnerable with people who are responsible to care for you. And if I'm vulnerable with you, then I'm, I'm essentially obligating you in some sense, right? Like I'm, I'm putting pressure on you to respond to my need and that it should be possible to be transparent 
without being vulnerable and then knowing when to be vulnerable. Uh, this is a moment in which, yes, I absolutely need to be able to be vulnerable. That's a really good point. Because uh, I think in, in that situation, when you're in that uh, professional position, that that your vulnerability almost almost reverses the roles in a sense uh, where now you're inviting them to kind of feel responsible for you uh, yes. when it's really the other way around. Yeah. That makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that's tied right to self-awareness which is another thing I've heard you talk about before that you kind of, you can't do this work, the work of pastoral response, taking pastoral responsibility in any form for other people without self-awareness. Right. Because if you if you lack that, you you do end up um, essentially overburdening them, or even you know, kind of worst case scenario, re-traumatizing them, like uh, deepening their wounds. Yeah, that's definitely um, true. I believe it's um, uh, my ability to be aware of what's being triggered in me as I'm working with others. You know, I I often use the phrase that I I learn about me by loving you and. Uh, there are times in my attempts to love and care for someone else that I discover a lot of my own issues coming to the surface that are that if I don't have enough self-awareness, I would just be blind to those. And um, so I I try to use the relationship with someone else, not just as a window by which I'm focusing on them, but also as a mirror by which I'm learning about my own stuff as the Holy Spirit reveals it and, and my willingness to take an honest look at you know what's was being sort of triggered in me uh, in that process. Yeah. I think I've really, over the years, in, in, in working with, with people through a variety of things, I think I've probably gained way more than they ever have from me, uh, just from the, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. process that, of working with them. It's, it's been so growth-producing in my own life, exposing in a lot of ways. And I, and I think it can be healing, right? There is a way in which, just like there can be vicarious traumatization. I think that's the word you used earlier. Mm -hmm. I think there can also be a kind of vicarious restoration or something like healing. I mean, I do want us to talk about what we do and don't mean by healing and whether or not even that's the right language. Maybe let's do that now and I'll come back to the other question. So, so how do we talk about trauma in relation to these kind of terms our tradition has given us, right? So our tradition has given us these theologically loaded terms like healing and sin and repentance and obedience and faith. Like we've got like this language that we've inherited and, but we're also kind of taking that up with language that from usually from kind of pop culture psych, right? Like we're catching from TV shows or some self-help book that we've someone recommended we read. Or perhaps we are actually seeing a therapist. So, like, how do, how do we hold those together? I mean, what do you advise your students, those you're mentoring, to how do we hold that those languages together? Because I do think there's a real risk of if you're if you're used to talk about healing, and now you're talking about trauma, to just resort to well, God heals this too, and that I think that there's a, there are real risks there in which you end up allowing your terms to dictate how you're reading the reality instead of seeing what's actually there and responding lovingly and faithfully to that your expectations are whatever there is god can heal and it will look like the healing of the body or the healing of a relationship and and so we brush past maybe the seriousness of the damage that's been done yeah, this is a really important question. Um, when I talk to my students about integrating spirituality into their work as, as developing counselors, I, I, I work with both um, students who are preparing to get licensed as professional counselors and also you know pastors who are moving into pastoral care and chaplaincy uh, type of uh, ministry. But um, we talk about the importance of language and the words we use to describe the, the process. Uh, and I've... I've seen a lot of overlap. We have our religious words that we use, um, you know, like like healing and um, uh, redemption, you know, those kinds of mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. religious theological words. But then on, in the uh, secular literature, we'll hear similar words like like resilience or repair. Recovery is kind of a, 
in-between word, I guess. Um, we can mm. even use the term recreation in a sense, which kind of has a, uh, I guess, a middle-of-the-road term between, you know, the, the redemptive process that produces new creations and then, you know, kind of the, the repair, resilient or recovery process that ends up with some kind of a recreation. Uh, yeah. And so the word that seems to fit best it kind of sometimes depends upon the person I'm working with and, and just what language they seem to speak. Um, there are, uh, you know, some clients I have that are um, non-Christian. So if I use any kind of Christian term, they're going to turn me off in a hurry. And others, yes. you know, I, I'll never forget this um, uh, marriage retreat I was doing for this church. <laughs> I was sharing all the latest research on relationships that I was so excited about and so forth. And finally, one fellow raises his hand and says, well, Doc, he goes, that's, that's all well and good, that research. He goes, but, but what's the Bible have to say? And I'm really, oh, <laughs> I wasn't speaking your language. I should have known yeah, my audience. Yeah. That was my fault. Yeah. But, um, yeah. uh, but you know, I, I often think of it just visually, and this goes back to that D-Men class we had when you shared um, that story of, from uh, Tolkien's work, The Cimmerillion. And I, I, yeah. that word integration, you know, you should share yeah. that story a little bit. Because to me, that I've always stuck with that and, and, and saw much of what we do as taking these experiences that we – have when life doesn't go as intended and, and integrating those into, into an ongoing, you know, ever evolving mm -hmm. story. Yeah. So for those who haven't read it, right, in, in the Silmarillion, kind of the opening story, right, is it's a creation myth. And there's this particular, you know, this is not the word he uses for it, but this particular angel kind of obviously typed from Satan in Christian tradition who while the way that God is creating is having these, the angels sing and what they sing comes into being and Melkor starts to sing dissonantly. He's singing off key, singing his own song essentially. And God, instead of kind of simply shutting him down or quieting him, just writes this larger, more capacious, more dynamic melody that kind of integrates those notes that were once dissonant and, and out of harmony into that larger, larger harmony. And I, I, I mean, I still remember how moved I was the first time that I read it. And, and I've come back to it, you know, over and over and over again, that there's something to that, that much of what we call redemption looks like that in practice. It's not so much a getting rid of that note or quieting that voice as being able to integrate it up into something larger and more dynamic. I don't think that works in every case for everything, but I do think it's a good paradigm for how to think about what health might be, you know, what and what the kind of life that I'm meant to live, how it might be possible. Yeah, that that's such a powerful image, and, and to me, it fits so well with the the work that we do with um, as as we help people who've had traumatic experiences and responses trying to integrate what happened into their story, into the, you know, the meaning that they're making of the world and their place in it. Um, and to see it as, as something that could actually, in the end, not necessarily remove that event. I mean, you can't, I mean, it's what's happened has happened, um, mm. but to integrate it in a way that allows for a richer story to emerge. Um, and to me, that the the paradox of of that, and just the um, uh, it's it's like the the image that comes to mind is what the one that we see in Revelation chapter five. You know, where uh, the Ancient of Days is on the throne with the scroll in his hands. You know, and the voice is calling out, "Who's worthy?" And all of heaven and earth is searched; no one's found worthy. And John is basically falls and weeps until he's told by the, the elders that you know that the lion of the tribe of Judah has been found worthy. And, and, uh, and so don't weep. And so John looks up expecting, I would imagine to see a majestic beast, you know, this lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks up and says, he sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain. So this bloodied yeah. lamb approaches the throne, but it's, it's referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So that juxtaposition, you know, that it's like, wow, the, the strength is found in weakness. Um, and the, the power of that. And so going through these kinds of hurtful, painful, sometimes just totally uh, life-disrupting kind of events. And, uh, mm -hmm. and as we work through them, we don't always feel s 
strong, like we've got it all together, you know, and we still have a sense of, of weakness sometimes. And, um, but just God's ability to help us integrate that into a life that actually ends up exhibiting such strength and beauty and value um, mm-hmm. that we know isn't about us, obviously. Um, yeah. It, but it, it's well, yeah, a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me, of course, of, you know, Paul's thorn in the flesh text, right? Which is, I think, a it is a trauma text in some sense, right? It's a wound that Paul wants closed and healed. So one of the things, and you and I have talked about this a few months ago, I, I'm continuing to work on it. One of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you today is I'm continuing to work on, uh, on theology and trauma. I'm going to teach a course this fall on theology and trauma. I'm giving a lecture um, in August, end of August on theology and trauma. So I'm, I'm thinking about this, reading about it a lot. And one of the things that I've, you know, I shared with you months ago is that I, th- I think we, whatever we call it, let's say we call it repair, recovery, resilience. We use healing language and redemption language more carefully that what it's somehow tied to the work of imagination, the work of imagining not just what has happened to us differently, but who we are because of what's happened to us differently. And I, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers to how that's done, but I've experienced it some in therapy myself and, and specifically in trauma therapy. And also, I, I think I intuited it even before then, right? That so much of whatever we mean by recovery so much of what we mean by resilience is not allowing the trauma to dictate the interpretation you give to the event and to the interpretation you give to who you are because of what's happened right that that it's i don't want to overstate the case but i wonder if maybe the worst effect or one of the worst effects of trauma is that it dis- it distorts our imagination in such a way that we we can't see what's there and we can't imagine the possibilities that that might be there we can't see it otherwise and and so i'd i'd like to hear you talk a bit about that like in terms of awakening do you, do you see and i don't i mean i don't want to put words in your mouth at all but do you see some kind of correlation or connection between kind of awakening the imagination and a move toward resilience and repair I think there's there's definitely a, a connection because it's so it's so easy when when you've been traumatized by some um, event experience you've had to to allow that to in a sense define you um, mm. and and then limit what you think is is possible as a result um, and so the ability to um, be able to redefine. Uh, who you are in that process. And, uh, I think, um, what you were saying about the apostle Paul's sword in the flesh really, uh, resonated with me around some of that, where, uh, you have a person who was referred to as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, I'm sure very, you know, um, arrogant in what he knew and his position and all of that, you know, which, um, you know, all of us go through our, our performance stage and our, image day is the first half of life where we're trying to, you know, prove our worth and whatever. Um, but then, uh, whatever it was he was struggling with there in that, in that thorn in the flesh, it, it, we know that it, it had a humbling effect. So whatever it was, it humbled him. Um, yeah. he wasn't able to get rid of it and, and it kept showing up. It was some kind of chronic thing, I guess. Um, but his ability to embrace that and not just to embrace it, but to boast of it, um, it's like all of a sudden we have a different Paul in my mind than the yes, one we would have yes. seen prior to that, and mm. and to me that's that's pretty powerful because I uh, I see it in a, in a little different way with, with even with Pentecostals, um, you know, growing up in a Pentecostal church, you know, we Acts one eight was probably our theme verse. You know, you receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, but somehow I caught the idea that when I when I 
received this baptism of the Holy Spirit that was sort of the badge we all pursued, um, that I would have a personality change. You know, I'd, I'd become this very bold witness of the gospel and very eloquent like Peter on the day of Pentecost, you know. Um, yeah. And that just never happened to me. And, uh, and so as much as I, you know, tried to make it happen, I guess, it, it just wasn't part of my experience. And then and it wasn't until some time later in, in, when I was in seminary and actually having to do some exegetical work on that text that I realized that, that the power wasn't about me. It, it wasn't about my ability and my, you know, bold personality or you know, eloquent tongue. Um, because Jesus didn't emphasize that this power to witness was something I was going to do. He kind of said it was something I was going to be. You know, he didn't say you receive power and you shall witness. He said you, you should receive power and you shall be yeah. my witness. So I realized that the power was in the Holy Spirit's ability to take who I was and make it a witness. And and then, of course, the real issue was, you know, what am I giving the Holy Spirit to work with? But essentially, it changed how I began to define myself. And so, and I think in in some ways, it's, it really has to realize I was making it less about me. It's not about me. Um, and making mm-hmm. you know, Jesus and his spirit central to this whole process, um, which is kind of what I see the Apostle Paul doing there, where it's like, you know, in my weakness, somehow God's strength shows up and it's not about me. Um, yeah. and so in that whole context, you know, he does something that is so, you know, <laughs> counterintuitive. You know, he's trying to boast of his uh, credentials yeah. and <laughs> basically boast of nothing but weakness. And, you know, when he had a lot to boast about that I would have thought, you know, I've planted so many churches and, you know, mentored so many men in the ministry and, you know, win so many souls yeah. to Christ. I mean, you know, and he boasts about nothing but weakness. And uh, and there's something there in that process of um, of redefining the self where we realize that it's it's not about me, but in some ways it, it, it making it more about um, uh, about the power of the spirit and what Jesus has done that somehow it, it changes how I see myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like the prodigal son coming home and realizing this isn't about me anymore, but somehow that changes how I see myself in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that process of imagination uh, comes into play in, in, as we begin to, kind of redefine who we are and maybe whose we are. So it's less about performance yeah. and much more about relationship. Yeah. And I, this is where, and this, you know, more than we can get into today, but I think this is where the simplicities come back to do even more harm to us, right? Because simplicities keep your imagination dormant. I mean, what, what awakens imagination are challenging stories and you know, complex music and you know, the kinds of artfulness that awaken curiosity or troubledness. You know, I, I remember that Karen Kilby has said, like, theology kind of begins with stumbling in prayer and beginning to think about that stumbling, right? And she also talks elsewhere about like holy troubledness that, that kind of stirs you toward reflection like so the imagination kind of comes awake when you when you run up against something you can't assimilate you can't quickly interpret right it's demanding for you and too many of our churches they're they're not only impatient and individualistic and offering you know kind of quick fixes they're also just too sim- simplistic to awaken the imagination. We need to be resilient. I mean, uh, am I being unfair? You, I mean, I, I certainly don't think that's true everywhere, but it does feel to me like that's a pretty, a, a pretty broadly, you know, that that's our context more often than not, right? A place where it's hard, it's hard to imagine because our we're, we're dealing with such flat interpretations of scripture, of history, of cultural issues, of our own stories. And I, I think some of what we have to do is, is recognize that there, we need the challenge. We need the difficulty that uh, scripture is filled with it. Right. I mean, I think this is why scripture tells the kinds of stories it tells uh, one, one example, just quickly and then get your response. You know, we, I grew up right in circles, people misquoted, Paul's first Corinthians 10, right? God will not put on you more than you're able to bear, right? Which is not actually what Paul says, <laughs> right? But, but that's how we quoted it, right? Like that. And what, but 
sadly, what that was taken to mean was no matter what you're suffering, it's not that bad because God wouldn't do something that's truly unbearable for you. But then we also love to, you know, which is not only, I mean, that's cruel. It's, it's, it may not, that not necessarily the intention of the people saying it, but it, there is a lack of, of charity and a lack of compassion that it could lead to saying that. But then another passage we love to quote, right, is Second Corinthians 4 about Paul saying, you know, we are afflicted, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed, right? We're, we're not driven to despair, right? This, we're, we're not crushed, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken, right? So all of our, all of the emphasis was on what we're not, right? We're not destroyed, we're not crushed, we're not forsaken, we're not driven to despair. And we didn't reckon with <laughs> the fact that that not being crushed is bound up with, you are suffering though, and you are being brought right up against that reality. And of course, to make matters even more complex, Paul opens 2 Corinthians by saying that he had despaired of life, that he was so afflicted that he despaired of life. We were crushed to the point of, like, I don't want to say Paul was suicidal, but whatever it means to despair of life, right? right? Which is not unrelated, right, to something like suicidal. So, Talk a bit about that, about the, the ways in which our our kind of flat simplicities, our, our trite simplicities, keep us from reading the texts that are actually right there in front of us. Well, to be honest, I think if we embrace complexity, then it has a humbling effect because essentially mm. I have to acknowledge I don't have all the answers to this. I may not know. Yeah. And there's something about that that I think we instinctively resist. We, we, we somehow want to have the answer, and so we we come up with one that we mm-hmm. hope people will buy. But it's more about us, I think, somehow needing to feel like we are needing to be perceived anyway as uh, having the answer and, and not being willing to humble ourselves and recognize I don't know. And, mm-hmm. but even if I don't know, I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to uh, be there for you and I'm going to listen and we're going to learn and grow together as we walk through this. And uh, we may never have a complete answer, but we'll, we'll make meaning in the process. We'll integrate this and something will emerge as a result. That's going to be really beautiful. Um, but it may still always have the scars, you know, just like, Jesus had the scars after the resurrection. You know, we, we, we still yeah. carry those. And, uh, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where uh, just being willing to have enough humility to realize that some things are more complex and, and I need to allow them to be that way and not try mm-hmm. to make them simple because that just dishonors yeah. the, the person's experience, really. Yeah, there's, there's complexity, there's mystery, and then there's that which I just do not know, right? And I don't know if it's because it's too complex for me to follow or because it's opened out on a mystery that's just not mine to know at all. And I think, you know, oddly enough, the the reason I think we're drawn to simplicities is that we we have so much confidence in our knowing. When when really we shouldn't, right? <laughs> it, my know and this is this wonderful line, you know, in Paul where he says you know God, or better, are known by God. I mean, that, that our confidence is in how we are known, not the way that we know. And, you know, ironically, the more confident we are in our own knowing, the more simplistic we have to be to kind of continually give ourselves that illusion of, of control and of understanding, when in fact, you know, reality is just too complex and it's, it's framed and rooted in mystery. So even if I could manage the complexity i would run up against mystery yeah the simplicity it, it, it helps us manage our anxiety because we can just say well all right it's just this is the way it is and so c- complexity and mystery have has a way of spiking anxiety because it, there's so much <laughs> little too, too much uncertainty here i want predictability yeah. i want control 
And so a simplistic message will always attract the following because it just helps people manage their anxiety, gives them this illusion of control. And we all mm. love that. Um, yeah. But if we're being honest, yeah it's, like it's, blinkers. yeah, it's like blinkers on the horse, right? Like if you're trying to, if you're plowing, it makes a kind of sense to, to blinker the horse, but you can't live like that. And you certainly can't live like that while you're trying to care for others. So as we, as we wrap up and start to turn toward home, we talked a lot about of how to think about trauma in ways that care for others, that show care for others. But for those who are, who are listening, who are struggling with their own trauma, so not so much about how to care for those who've been traumatized, but people who are, are wounded and maybe aren't even sure whether or not to name it as trauma or not, but the people who are in kind of deep pain, where, how, where to begin? Like how, how to, I think about a few things that you've said today. One is it, obviously they need a community where they can recover their resiliency and, and find some repair. But I think for a lot of people, they're not even sure how to identify is my community that kind of place or not? And do I have permission to leave my community if it's not that kind of place? How do I discern that? So in terms of those, those people who are kind of in, in the, the thorn is in their flesh. Like where, where would, how would you advise them both as a therapist and as a pastor for where to begin, how to pray? What, what are the kinds of questions they should be asking themselves for what's possible and what what is necessary how to move toward recovery whatever that might be yeah great questions i think it all begins with with being honest being honest with ourselves about the fact that there is something here that um has become a chronic issue for whatever reason it's that thorn in the flesh that's just not going away in spite of our prayers or whatever yeah um and sometimes it starts with finding maybe a safe person. You, know, you may not be able to find a community or, or know yet if your community is safe, but if you can find a safe person, um, and that may end up being a professional. Professionals have to be safe, you know, because yeah. if you're not safe, you, you know, you're not going to stay in business. Um, but, but really, uh, it, can be, it can begin with a, a, a close friend or family member, someone that you trust that you you believe is safe or reaching out to a pastor or a, a, um, a counselor or someone who you can just honestly talk to about what you're experiencing and, and know that in sharing it, you, you found someone who, um, who cares and who's, who's, who wants to understand, who can accept you and then who can begin to walk with you through what the next steps might look like, you know, and, and that could, go in any number of directions, um, which would hopefully eventually involve finding a safe community where you can be, that you can yeah. be part of um, as you continue to walk this out. But, but being able to practice a, a, a lot of kind of self-acceptance and self-compassion in the process, uh, mm. we, we can be so hard on ourselves and, and think that what's wrong with me uh, that I, yeah. I that I'm not getting past this. or what was wrong with me that this happened to begin with? Um, mm. And of course, all the questions about, God and that comes up and but there's kind of at the root of all of it there's this kind of shame wound we carry around this stuff that makes us wonder what's what's the matter with me um, and mm. I think uh, finding some uh, a place where you can be open and honest about that sort of thing that's uh, that's yeah. just part of the human condition in some ways but for some people that shame wound goes pretty deep and it's uh, especially on issues of trauma that are so easy to to take personally. Either we blame ourselves for for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or for surviving when when everybody else didn't survive, or or for not recovering quickly enough, or whatever it is. You know what's what's wrong with mm-hmm. me, and, uh, mm-hmm. and just that uh, safe place that we need where we can begin to address some of those shame issues that are almost always are surround this sort of thing. Yeah, you know. It's it's interesting you bring that up, that kind of self-compassion and a sense of, of rightful confidence, right? A, 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 an assurance that that you can trust your own heart. And this this is a, another conversation for another day. I'd, I'd love to have you back to talk about this. 
I think a lot of evangelical spirituality broadly, including Pentecostal charismatic spirituality, it it separates us from our own heart out of you know in in the name of the heart being desperately wicked and that the heart being a seed of sin. And it turns us against ourselves so that anything like self-compassion or self-talk of, of any kind can is then regarded as a refusal to rely upon the Lord, right? You're, you're following, you're turning to your own heart instead of to the heart of God, which I think is unbelievably destructive, right? I mean, it, it shatters our humanity. And part of what really turned my mind on this is Mary. So, you know, Luke chapter 1 the angel appears, you know, he names her as the favored one, right? Like hail favored one, right? The Lord is with you. And, and she's, she's been chosen out of the chosen people. She's been chosen to be the mother of God. And what she doesn't, you know, she asks the question, like, how can this be? Because I don't have a husband and I don't, I don't think this is how it works. Right. And, and then once she's received this kind of assurance, no, you, you will have a child, um, and his name will be Jesus, right? She's she rushes to Elizabeth, and as soon as Elizabeth sees sees her, she says, "You know how blessed I am, right? That the mother of my Lord would come to me." And then Mary bursts into self talk, right? Like everything she says, like on that, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices, for He has looked with favor on on me, the lowly state of His servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed for, for the Lord has done great things for me. And there's, there's, it seems to me there's, there's a kind of connection there, right? If you have the right, if you have Elizabeth's around you who recognize what God is doing in your life, it should free you to that kind of self-confidence and self-compassion that enables you to see, no, 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 like, this the Lord has done great things for me, and it is it's not due to my achieving things no one else around me could achieve. The Lord's not done great things for me because I'm superior to those around me. But the Lord is doing great things for me. And that somehow we have to recover that. But I, I think what gives her permission to do that is Elizabeth. Like Elizabeth's response to her, like a like a permits Mary to kind of burst into song. I love that. Um, and, and that's the, certainly the value of community and relationships. And I think that's what Jesus was leaving us with, that final conversation where he gives his disciples that new commandment to love one another as I've loved you. And that's going to be how people know you're my disciples, you know, and that, and just wanting to see the formation of a community that's going to be characterized by the love that he, by which he loved them. You know, so the love that they've experienced becomes the love that they express, and the and how that it becomes such a therapeutic type of community. And yeah. boy, if, if that's what we can offer um, people, then that's a safe place, and that's where uh, those who've been traumatized and are working through that process can can find the support and the and the, the help and the uh, and just the grace that they need. Yeah, amen to that. Bill, thank you for this conversation. I really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll talk again 